presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is our next to the last study in our series that I've entitled It Is Finished, The Sure Foundation of Christianity. And the title of today's uh, session together is Nothing in My Hand I Bring. Now, uh, for most of us, that will be a very, uh, very familiar uh, phrase because it's taken from the great hymn by Augustus Toplady. And incidentally, that was in 1776. Um, Let me just read that for you. I promise I won't sing it. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Very reminiscent uh, of... uh, David's prayer, David's Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice he uses the uh, three different terms for sin there. Uh, The words sin, iniquity, and transgression. Sin is the generic term. It simply means to miss the mark. We fall short of God's uh, goal for us, and that is His glory. He uses the term transgression, which means to step across a known line. Certainly when David wrote this, he had done that because he had not only committed adultery, but he also had committed murder uh, through the hands of the Ammonites uh, on the Bathsheba's husband Uriah the Hittite. And he also uses the words uh, the word iniquity here, which means a bent. We are we come into this world with a bent away from God. That's uh, that's original sin. It's the uh, it's the idea of crookedness within us. David goes on to say in verses 16 and 17 of Psalm 51, "You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it." You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. You will not take lightly a broken and contrite uh, heart and a broken uh, spirit. The Bible, uh, as we've seen over these last uh, uh, sessions together, the Bible certainly... uh, in its teaching about salvation from sin, uh, we have learned already that it is certainly entirely by God's grace. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved. Uh, in Romans 9, in referring to Moses, uh, Paul wrote, For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So God says, Salvation is entirely by grace. It's not anything that we do. It is certainly entirely apart from any human effort whatsoever. Again, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Notice it's not something that we can earn. Not only that, it's by faith, but even the faith that we express toward God, the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, is a gift that God has to give us. Yes, we are the ones who believe. God doesn't believe for us. We have to believe, but we are unable, as we shall see, to believe unless God enables us to do so. And we'll talk about how He does that. 
And again, that same uh, passage uh, expanded from Romans chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And here's, here, here it comes. For then, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion. Well, then what does it depend on? Well, it depends on God who has mercy. Salvation always is initiated by God. Uh, It has to be because of our fallen, sinful human condition. The Bible says that we are spiritually dead when we come into this world. That we are incapable, we are unwilling, we are unable to respond to God because we are spiritually dead. Uh, A dead person does not respond to stimuli around him, no matter what the stimuli is. It doesn't matter if it's a if it's a 8.0 earthquake, a physically dead person will not get up and go outside so that the building won't fall on him. He is unable to uh, respond to such a thing. We have a natural animosity toward God. We have seen that uh, throughout the Scriptures. The, the mind of the natural man is hostile toward God. Uh, the, the, the mind of the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolish to him uh, because they have to be spiritually discerned. Well, why can't he spiritually discern them? Because he is spiritually dead. That's the way we arrive in this world. That's why salvation has to be initiated by God. The first thing God has to do is to regenerate our spirit. He has to bring us to life. You see, God doesn't save anybody against their will. What God does is He brings brings people to life, and in doing so, He He changes our will. All of a sudden, He makes us willing. And then, because we've been made willing, because we've given been given by God as a gift, the ability to repent. The uh, we've been given faith. We express faith in Jesus Christ. We express repentance toward God we are willing to come to the cross and fall on our faces before God and say have mercy on me O God cleanse me and what does God do he does just that but unless God first regenerates us we will never ever ever do that now what I want us to do today is I want us to uh, uh, take about half of our time uh, looking at a very familiar story in Luke chapter 15. The time is around A.D. 29 or 30. This is uh, Jesus was uh, uh, fulfilling his public ministry at the time. And this is taken, uh, this, this tale of a father and his two sons is taken from, uh, <clears throat> from a single parable. Uh, Jesus told a parable. It's the parable of lost things. There was a, a lost sheep and a lost coin and, uh, and some people say a lost son, although we shall see that there were actually two lost sons. So we want to talk about this uh, this father and his two sons. But remember, the word parable is uh, is made up of uh, two Greek words, para, which means alongside, like a paramedic or a paralegal, somebody who comes alongside to help the doctor, somebody who comes alongside to help the attorney, and. Uh, 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 bole, a parable, bole, which uh, originally meant a ball, and it was the idea of throwing, throwing a ball. A parable is a story that is thrown alongside a situation. It's cast alongside a particular situation that's going on in order to make a, a point about that situation. So, anytime you read the parables, uh, when it says Jesus. Jesus told this parable. First thing you need to ask, uh, say to yourself, is wait a minute before I read the parable. I need to understand what's going on. What is it that precipitated uh, Jesus talking about this? Because 
he is going to cast a story alongside a situation to make some kind of point about this situation. So if Jesus is doing that, I need to understand what the situation is. So the context of this parable uh, we see in verses 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 15. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Him. This was um, part of the high point of Jesus' ministry, and people loved to hear Him preach. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Alright, so... First thing we need to notice about the context is the audience itself. It's a mixed audience. You've got a lot of religious people there, scribes, Pharisees, uh, teachers of the law, and then you've got a lot of other people, the, the common kind of folk who just doing the best they can, doing their, uh, you know, working their jobs, uh, just trying to eke out some kind of living. Uh, tax collectors who were the considered to be the offscouring of the earth. Remember, they they were the tax collectors generally were Jews who were working for the Roman government, so they were they were really despised uh, by their. Uh by their fellow citizens, and then the and then it says tax collectors and sinners, and notice the word sinners is in quotation marks, and that's just a reference to all of the people who were following Jesus around. And I think the the point that it's in quotation marks here in the uh, in the NIV is uh, is for the emphasis of contrasting. The, the regular kind of folks as opposed uh, up against the uh, uh, the religious uh, the religious people now Jesus tells um, uh, the story it, uh, it says he told this parable and it's singular but it's in three movements it, there's a parable of the lost sheep there's a parable of the lost coin and then there's this parable about these uh, about these two boys the, the dad and his two boys there's some commonalities with the uh, with the two previous uh, uh, parts of the parable and that is something or someone was lost in the case of the sheep a sheep was lost, and in the case of a coin, the coin was lost. Uh, sheep is an is an animate object, but it's not human. The uh, the coin is an inanimate object, and it was um, it was it had value just because of the things that it could buy, the things that perhaps it represented uh, from this woman's uh, headdress that uh, from which it had been um, lost. And then you've got these uh, this this lost or lost sons. Uh, in each of the cases, uh, the the two previous cases, the sheep and the coin, uh, each of those things was restored. And eat and in each of those two parts of the parable about the sheep and the coin, the that part ends with a great celebration. There's a lot of rejoicing because the thing that was lost, the sheep and the coin, have been restored. So that's that. Those are the basic commonalities that uh, that the first two parts of the parable share with this uh, third part of the parable. So, uh, let's uh, let's just uh, continue to read and we're going to see what uh, what is going on. Uh, verse 3, Then Jesus told them this parable, and this is of course the, where the sheep and the coin stories appear here. And then in verse 11, having, having finished the part about the sheep and the coins, Jesus launches into the part about the sons. And remember, when you tell a story... It's kind of like telling a joke. Where is the punchline? It's always at the end. So Jesus was setting up this thing with the first two parts. And it's not to say that the, the sheep and the coin part are not important because they are. But And again, there are some commonalities that they share with this last part. But, uh, but it's all, it, it's sort of a crescendo as you move toward the end of the, uh, the, end of the parable. Uh, verse 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one... So now we move from the, uh, from the animate and the inanimate now to the human. 
And you can imagine these people, they love stories. They love the way Jesus preached. uh, That is, except for the religious people. And, uh, And so they were just hanging on every word that he had to say. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, remember in, in this day, so you've got, he's got two sons, which means that eventually one of these days he's going to die, and when he does, his property will be divided up into three parts. The younger son will get a third, and the older son will get two-thirds, because the eldest son always got a double portion. Uh, just simply because uh, because he's the uh, he's the firstborn. Now that would happen at the time of, uh, of the of the father's death. So when this younger son says, "Look, I, just go ahead and give me my share of the estate right now," essentially he's uh, he's saying, "Look, I, you might as well just drop dead." It was a very disrespectful thing to say to a father, "I won't mind now." And listen, every I'm sure there were gasps throughout the, uh, this group of people who were standing around listening because they realized what an insult this would be to the father for the younger, particularly the younger son, to make some sort of request like this. But notice what the father did. It says, so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Now apparently, uh, I don't know what kind of property, Jesus doesn't tell us what kind of property he had. Certainly there was probably some sort of land involved. But there were also other things, and uh, and apparently this younger son had just uh, changed it all into money, uh, put it in his coin purse, and, and headed for parts unknown set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Now this is the part where a lot of preachers wax eloquent because they just really tell us about all the things that he did and actually Jesus doesn't even include that uh, in the story. So we'll just leave that out. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now, when you get to that point in the story, I'm sure that the gasps just were tremendous throughout the crowd because it is clear now that this young Jewish boy, this this young man, is working for a Gentile hog farmer. And uh, living in some sort of Gentile country, he's just cut off from everything. So here he is. He's in a mess. He, he doesn't have any money. And now while he's away working for this uh, Gentile hog, uh, hog farmer, the, uh, there's a famine that takes place in that land and even the hog farmer's having a hard time. And I mean, this, this young, this kid is, is at the low end of the, the, the food chain, as it were. It says, uh, He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So Jesus just really paints a picture of a kid in really, really desperate kind of, uh, a desperate kind of situation. It says, When he came to his senses. Now, how did that happen? Jesus doesn't tell us. But it says, He did come to His senses. When He came to His senses, He said, How many of my father's hired men, not, not just a son, but, but just, just the hired guys, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? Here's His plan. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Now notice, what is his strategy? 
He's going to go back. He's going to plead his case to Dad. But uh, the thing he thinks that really is going to impress Dad and will at least get him a place where he can eat and sleep, he says, make me like one of your hired men. I don't want to come back as your son. I know I'm, I'm not worthy of that. I don't deserve that. But let me just live out there in the bunkhouse with, uh, with one of the hired guys and... Uh, so what's he what's he doing in order to come back? He says, "I'm going. I can earn my way back. I'll come back and I'll work for Dad." So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now, what what does that say about Dad? Well, Dad was expecting him to come back, and Dad was watching for him to come back. His father saw him and was filled with compassion. What is compassion? Come with passion to suffer. He's been suffering with this boy. The boy's been away and, and dad's been just suffering over the whole situation. But sometimes, you know, God just lets the rope out like He did with Jonah. Let you go your own way. But, of course, God's holding on to the other end of the rope. And you can go just so far. Uh, and in Jonah's case, it was, the, it was the bottom of the ocean. Or the bottom of the Mediterranean. But anyway, back to our story here. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. It says he ran. Uh, In this day, fathers didn't run to do anything. That was beneath their dignity. Uh, He abandoned his... this, This father abandoned his dignity. He welcomed that boy. Now, where's the boy been working? He's been working at a hog parlor. What does he probably smell like right now? He smells like hogs. And yet, what does his dad do? He just wraps his arms around that boy and just hugs him. He is so glad that that kid has come home. The son said, all right, now remember, his strategy is, you know, I, I, I can't expect to get back in the big house after the things that I've done, but maybe Dad will let me stay in the bunkhouse. So, so all right, he's about to, the kid's about to apply his strategy here. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Now, who do you suppose had the best robe? Of course, Dad had the best robe. It was Dad who had the best robe. When we come to Christ, what is the robe that God gives to us? He clothes us with His own righteousness. That's the best robe in all of the universe. And put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. That's a that's a picture. That's a picture not of working, uh, being a hired person. That's a picture of family, of the family ring, the the sandals on his feet, not going barefooted. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Now, now this is interesting too. Think about this. You know, one of the things they do when, when you're going to have a big party is they would spend some time. And it, it, listen, we, we used to, uh, when we first moved to the country many, many years ago, uh, we would always keep a few uh, cows out in the pasture. And occasionally we'd put one, you know, in the freezer. Uh, to that, that was our supply of, uh, of meat. And... Uh, one of the things that we did, I always, uh, they not only, you know, ate uh, uh, grass and the hay during the uh, season when the grass, when the pasture was not growing, but one of the things I would do is every day when we'd feed them, it was one of the, one of the responsibilities of the children, is that uh, we'd, we'd give them horse feed because that horse feed had molasses in it. And one of the things that that would do is it would really marble up that uh, 
that meat in those cows and then when it was time to take them to uh, to, to slaughter then uh, the meat would be nice and tender it would be marbled uh, throughout with little bits of fat so when you would you know when you would cook it it was just it was it would almost just melt in your mouth I'm about to get hungry here just talking about it but the point I'm making and I'm you thought I'd never get back to it I'm sure uh, the point is is that in order to do that that's not something you could just do overnight you couldn't fatten up the calf overnight that's something that took a period of time in order to do that well notice they've killed uh, dad says go and kill the fattened calf well why is the calf being fattened isn't isn't dad been upset because his his young younger son has has gone away and has gotten into all kind of trouble what does this tell us this tells us that the dad recognized that that boy was going to come back see god always brings his own to himself He's going to bring that boy back. And when that boy came back, there's going to be just like in the case of the sheep and the coin, there's going to be a big celebration. My son has come home. He was dead and now he is alive. Praise be to God. And there's a big celebration. So during this time when the kid's been gone, I don't know at what point it began, but dad started getting the calf fattened up because he knew that kid was coming back. And he knew that there was going to be a celebration when that kid did come back. So, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Notice it says they began to celebrate. doesn't say they ever stopped celebrating. There's always rejoicing in heaven over the uh, the repentance of, uh, of a sinner. When, when God saves somebody, there's rejoicing in heaven. So now, what, what have we seen so far? Uh, well, when we look at the younger son, we've seen him publicly shame his father by... Uh, asking for his uh, for his inheritance ahead of time he certainly lived a profligate lifestyle and his whole plan was to earn his way back uh, and then when we look at the father we see the father's acceptance of the son he ran to his son he embraced the son he clothed the son with his own robe and there was this huge public celebration of the fact that he uh, that he came back he was he had been lost he'd been far far away and uh, his his whole idea in coming back was um, he would try to he would try to earn his way back and of course that's impossible because it's not by works of righteousness which we have done but according to his mercy he saved us we see the dad here having mercy on this uh, on this boy but now remember and this is this is where a lot of sermons end right here hot dog now let's have an altar call and and that's fine and that's fine but this is not where jesus ended the story and the point is, is that the punchline is always at the end of a story. So Jesus has really not made his point yet. Yes, there is celebration. Yes, it's wonderful that this son has come back. But remember the context. There's a mixed audience. You've got these tax collectors and the sinners, and certainly they see themselves in this younger son. But there's another group of people who are listening to Jesus too. Who are they? That's right. The scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. And so Jesus now is going to address them specifically as well. Verse 25. See, the story's not over yet. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. What's he doing? He, he's working. Listen, hey, you know, the younger kid, I don't know how much he'd been doing, but that older boy, whoa, man, he could he could get it done. And here he is this day, just like I'm sure every other day, he's out there working in the field. And all, remember, Dad's already divided up the inheritance, and this older kid, his, uh, this older son, has gotten uh, gotten two-thirds of the share, so he's got even more of an incentive to, uh, to work hard there on the, on the property and make things produce. 
It says, uh, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. I mean, that's a celebration because his brother had come home. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Well, your brother's come, he replied, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. He became angry. Why? 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 My that that boy didn't deserve anything like that. Well, if if that's if that's what the older kid was saying, the older kid was sure right. That younger boy didn't deserve that. See, that's what grace is: is that God gives us what we don't deserve. We can't earn our way back. He's he's upset. He's been listen. He's been putting in all the time. He's been working hard. He's been burning the candle at both ends all this time. We understand why he's angry. Refused to go in, and he answered his. Uh, notice his dad went out. His father went out and pleaded with him. Pleaded with him to do what? To come in. Come into the celebration. How many of these scribes and Pharisees were celebrating over the fact that tax collectors and sinners were coming to faith, who were really believing in the in the God of Israel? Oh no 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 no! You you don't come our way. You don't come at all. That was their attitude. And notice verse twenty nine. The the older son is speaking, and he says, "But he answered his father, look." Mm. Look, I mean, that's that just disrespectful right there. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friend. Look, you gave him a fattened calf. You never even gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice he doesn't even call him his brother. You know that we're we're in the same human family. We all got the same problem, and that's the problem of sin. This son of yours, not God, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes up now. Where, I don't know where the older brother got that information that the boy had been hanging out with. Uh, with prostitutes, that may be true, but uh, again, this is the part. That's the part of the story that a lot of people, a lot of preachers, like to embellish. You just talk about this terrible lifestyle that the older brother, I'm sorry, that the younger brother had been living. But the real focus is on the older brother, the tax collectors, and the and uh, not the tax collectors, the uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. Excuse me. He says, he squandered your property with prostitutes. When he comes home, you kill the cat, fat, and calf for him. Verse 31, my son, the father said, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now once again, relate this last part of the parable to the context. Who's the audience? When he talked about the younger son, the tax collectors and the sinners would identify with that. And now the scribes and the Pharisees would identify with this. And believe me, they did not lose the fact that Jesus was aiming this at them. But but I, I don't want to go there uh, quite yet. I do want you to notice that in both cases, that both these sons had the same sin, but they used different strategies. The While the while the younger son ran off, he publicly shamed his father and ran off and spent everything. The older son stayed home and worked. But it was the older son who publicly shames his father by the way he addresses his father when his father is out essentially begging him 
to come in to the celebration. He refused to the to attend the feast. His manner of address was look. All these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed you. Now, why would he say that? The reason he said that because in the mind of the older brother, he felt like he deserved better. Why did he think he deserved better? Because he'd earned his way. See, the younger son wanted to <clears throat> excuse me. The younger son wanted to earn his way back. Just make me like one of the hired guys. I live out in the bunkhouse. But the older son said, I don't have to earn my way. I've already earned my way. I've done all this stuff. While that boy was away, I've been burning that candle at both ends and in the middle too. He even refused to acknowledge his brother. So you see, on the one case, on the one hand, the younger brother was lost, but he was lost far, far away. In the other case, the older brother was also lost. But he was lost right there at the father's house. Both of them were seeking to, uh, for autonomy, I guess you could say, and, and, to, and for fulfillment in their lives. Um, the younger son looked at his dad and I guess thought of him as some sort of killjoy and and getting his money and leaving would be a would be a way out of this boy I tell you all I want to do is get away from dad's house get out from under his thumb and uh, and yet when you look at the older boy he he, he considered that that the dad, the treatment dad was giving him was unfair he certainly didn't care about his younger brother uh, the younger brother was <clears throat> was just filled with self indulgence. The uh, on the on the other hand, the older brother had had conformed to the father's what the father wanted him to do. He was conforming outwardly. There was a moral type of conformity. You know, you look at it and hey, this looks like a very upright person. These scribes and Pharisees. The younger brother had been disobedient and now was going to earn his way back. The older brother thought he had already earned his way because he had been obedient. The younger brother received the father's mercy and was restored. And it was great celebration over all of that. And yet when the story ends, it's the older brother who is exhibiting hostility toward his father. And there does not seem to be reconciliation between the two. See, both wanted what the father had, but neither of them wanted a real close relationship, if any at all, with the father. At least they didn't to start with. But the younger son had come to his senses. How did he come to his senses? Well, the same way we've been we've been talking about over these weeks together as we go through the Bible study, it's when it's when God regenerates us, when he brings us to life inside and we see ourselves for the sinners that we are. Now that's what happened to that younger that younger kid. He saw himself for the sinner that he was. Now he thought he could maybe earn his way back. He couldn't. He was mistaken about that. And dad was going to teach him that that was not the case. But the older brother, he was still blind. He didn't recognize that he was a sinner. He didn't recognize his own hostility toward God, which was evident also by the hostility that he had toward his brother as well. Grace is always free to the recipient, but it always costs the giver. God's grace to His people cost Him the life of His Son. And if we're gracious to other people, it's going to cost us something. But as recipients of God's grace, how can you and I refuse to be gracious to other people? 1 John 4, chapter 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. 
See, apart uh, here again, looking at the parable, and then we want to go on and look at some things in uh, in Galatians. Uh, apart from Christ, you and I seek autonomy and fulfillment either by self-indulgence, the way the younger son did or by some sort of moral conformity as the older son did. And even as believers, these tendencies still remain within us. And both these strategies for living are motivated by fear. And it's only in Christ who is our true and faithful elder brother who does love us and who rejoices when we come to faith. But only in Him. Can we live our lives to the glory of God, motivated by faith and hope and love? Now let's uh, let's let's move on. We I took a little more time on that than I had planned to. I, I apologize. Uh, look at page two of your notes with me, if you will. And uh, incidentally, I have included again that uh, that chart uh, for that we used last time. And uh, but I wanted us to. There were a couple of things that I want us to look at again, and uh, time permitting, we'll we'll do so. I want us to look at uh, some passages from Galatians three, four, five, and six. We certainly don't have time to read all of that, and there's no reason to. Uh, the time that this was written. Uh, it was around A.D. 49. It, uh, it is probably the first of, uh, of Paul's letters to the, uh, to the various churches. Certainly he had, it was written after he had finished his first missionary journey and prior, uh, we believe, to the time of the Jerusalem Council which took place in late A.D. 49 and early A.D. 50. But what had happened, Paul in that first missionary journey Along with his, uh, along with Barnabas, uh, and uh, and John Mark had originally gone up into uh, uh, the southern part of uh, of central Turkey, and. Barnabas and John, uh, John Mark had bailed out, and so it, it left uh, Paul and Barnabas. Went up there and preached, and God just dr- did some dramatically tremendous things among the Gentiles, and many people came to faith. But there was a group of people who uh, came to be known as Judaizers who would follow Paul and his team around, uh, and after they would leave town, they would come into town and say, well, now, a lot of what Paul had to say was, was really good stuff uh, because you certainly do need to trust in Christ to be saved. But remember this, and, uh, and you know, when you get to the butts and all that stuff, that's when you got to watch out. He said, but remember this, Jesus himself was a Jew, and Jesus kept the law. And so, since uh, that's the case, in order for us really, for, in order for a person really to be saved, they've got to keep the law also. That means that you Gentile guys have got to be circumcised. It means all of you have got to start keeping kosher. You've got to keep, up, uh, keep all these dietary restrictions. You've got to start keeping the festival days and the new moon and all these kinds of things. And I mean the joy of the Galatians just plummeted. And that's what precipitated Paul writing this letter to the churches in Galatia uh, addressing that issue. So I just want us to just read a little bit here and and notice... uh, what uh, what he says? He says, "You uh, now remember in our story, uh, Jesus is talking to primarily a Jewish audience, the the, the, the tax collectors and the sinners, uh, and also the uh, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law. This was almost exclusively a Jewish audience. It's interesting that Paul says in Romans chapter ten, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Jews, is that they may be." saved. Notice, just because they're Jews doesn't mean they're saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. That is, they, oh man, let's, let's go out and do some stuff for God. But not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. See, just like the older brother had felt like he had earned his way seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. 
For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And why were they that way? Because they they're very familiar with the scriptures. They they knew what the scriptures said, and uh, said, well, we need to do this. But but they were blind to the fact that the scriptures were always pointing to one who would come, who would ultimately deal with sin, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, when he writes Galatians, is dealing with primarily a uh, a Gentile audience and he says this and we begin in uh, Galatians chapter 3 you foolish Galatians who has bewitched you after beginning with the spirit are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard. See, see, these Judaizers were saying, you got to keep the law. Yeah, you got to trust Jesus, but you also got to keep the law. Well, let me tell you what. That's like having one foot in the boat and the other one on the dock, and the boat has been uh, untied from the dock. That is a bad situation to be in. Verse uh uh, six. Consider Abraham. Now remember, Abraham came along before the law was given. In fact, about 400 years or so before the law was given. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the Gospel in advance to Abraham. And how did he announce it in advance? By saying this, and he quotes from Genesis, All nations will be blessed through you. Verse 9, So then, I'm sorry, So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So he said, look, you, you Gentiles... Abraham was saved apart from the law. The law hadn't even been given. All he did was he believed what God told him at the time. He just trusted God. He trusted God with everything that God had revealed to him. And see, that's the Bible is an unfolding revelation. In in Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen, when God says, uh, "You know, the um, uh, the serpent's going to bruise the heel of the of the one that's uh, born of you," uh, talk speaking to the woman, and the one who's born of you is going to crush the head of the serpent. That that was a picture of ultimately what would happen at the cross. That's that's all Adam and Eve could believe. That's all they knew at the time. And they trusted that. So uh, trust in God is dependent on how much revelation has been given. I trust in what God has revealed at this point. I trust in what God has revealed at this point and at this point. And uh, as you read through the Scriptures, you see that there's more and more and more and more revealed until you come to the New Testament. And then God has given His ultimate uh, revelation uh, where? In the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We we have the scriptures that testify to the the coming of Christ uh, and to his life and to his his true identity that he is fully God fully man and that his work is a finished work that he did on the cross and there is nothing that we add to that nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling. Now, Paul comments on why the law was given uh, later. Notice verse 23 of Galatians chapter 3. Before this faith came, that is our faith in Christ, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to do what? To lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. See, the law is a mirror. We look in the mirror and the mirror says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. The Old Testament was filled with that kind of stuff. The Old Testament, the, the... I guess you could summarize the Old Testament by saying, do this and you'll live. Well, what's the problem? You can't do this. 
Because we're sinners by nature. We're sinners by birth. We're, we're sinners by choice. We can't do what God requires. And that's why David wrote, Oh God, have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. Cleanse me of my iniquity. Wash away my sin. Because he recognized that the, the blood of goats and uh, other animals was not getting the job done. Oh God, work in my life. And so the law was given to lead us to Christ. In other words, we saw our predicament as we looked at the law and said, I can't do what God requires. And God says, congratulations, you're beginning to get it now. You need to look to Me. And we see that final and full revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ that the that everything was pointing to him that 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 his coming and his particularly his time when he died on the cross is the focal point of all of all history of all time it's the focal point even of the future that everything that came before it pointed to that we live after the cross we look back at the cross because that's when God accomplished what he intended to accomplish all along it says, uh, let's, let's keep reading. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified. How? By faith. Now that faith has come, he writes to these Galatians and ultimately to us, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. We don't do, we don't have to keep dietary restrictions. We don't have to make animal sacrifices. Christ has freed us from this supervision of the law. Now, is there anything wrong with the law? Paul goes out of his way to explain, no, there's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is there's something wrong with us, and we can't keep the law. Jesus kept the law perfectly. And through faith in Him and His finished work, God credits to us that perfection that Jesus had. He clothes us with that robe. Just like when that boy came back and his dad went out there to meet him and hugged that boy as stinky as he was, bring the best robe in the house. And that's got to be the Father's robe. And clothe this boy. He may have still smelled stinky underneath that robe, but when everybody in the neighborhood looked at him, all they saw was, man, this guy's wearing the dad's robe. He's all right. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, does that mean there are no Jews and Gentiles? No, it doesn't mean that. Does that mean there were no slaves and no freemen in that day? No, it doesn't mean that. Does it mean there were no guys and no women in that day? No, it doesn't mean that. What it does mean is those positions, those statuses uh, in society mean nothing. We are one in Christ Jesus. The, le- the, 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 the ground at the foot of the cross is level. And he goes on to say, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Chapter 4, when verse 3, when we were children... We were, held, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. See, here's, a, here's, here's our legal standing before God. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. Say, I'm going to come back. I'm gonna, I'll Just make me one of your hired men. No, God doesn't have hired men. God has sons. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. That is, we are heirs with Christ. Praise be to God. And he continues through his. How is it that you can turn back to these old ways? 
He just pleads with these uh, with these people over and over and over again. Um, in, in chapter five, verse seven, you were running a good race. That is, you were living by faith. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. And he says, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. What's the, what's the point? When you begin to yield to this legalism, to the, to the whole idea that I, I can earn my way, won't God be pleased if I do this? And I make some brownie points with Jesus. He says, that's like yeast and dough. He says, before you know it, it just permeates the whole thing. Verse 13 of chapter 5, You, my brothers, were called to be free. But don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. See, there's the practical aspect of it. That doesn't mean I can just live any way I please. No, I'm supposed to live in such a way that I, I love my brother and people see that. Well, you know, how is it that people know that we're Christians? They know that we're Christians. They will know that you are my. Uh, 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 They'll know that you are mine uh, when they see the works that you do, Jesus uh, Jesus said. Uh, there, there are a lot of common errors that people have about God, that somehow God is helpless. He's waiting for a person to decide what to do about salvation. God's not helpless. God's sovereign. Uh, another common error is that people have the freedom and the ability uh, them, within themselves to choose God. That's not true um, because we're dead. Dead people don't don't choose to do anything. That, now they may choose to put on this kind of tie or these kind of shoes or whatever. But see, that doesn't have anything to do with the spiritual realm. We're dead spiritually when we come into this world, and that's why the first thing that we need in order to be able to please God, to come to God, to seek after God, is for God to regenerate us, to bring our dead souls to life. Uh, some of the, there's some common errors about grace that grace can be or must be earned. I, that's that's just flies in the face of the definition of grace. And uh, some people deserve grace more so than others do. Well, again, that flies in the face of the definition because grace is something that we don't deserve. Grace is uh, not necessary if a person works hard enough. See, that's what the older son thought. I've been busting it all these years, and uh, hey, I've earned my way. No, that's, that's not true either. See, when it comes to salvation, all of the glory belongs to God and belongs to God alone. Remember uh, from our, uh, and I refer you just briefly to that, uh, to that chart again where you've got that unbreakable chain of God's salvation that where from all eternity He foreknew His people and He predestined, predestined them uh, to become conformed to the image of His Son. And then in time and space, He effectually calls them to Himself. He justifies them that is, He declares them to be righteous, clothing them with the righteousness of God. And then ultimately, one day, uh, once again in eternity, He will glorify us. Where that simply means that this, this new... Uh, this new nature that I have, this nature that lives within me, that is within me, that loves God and loves God's people and desires to please God and is grieved when I don't do so, that that nature will be united with a body that is also free from sin. See, in, in justification, we are freed from the penalty of our sin. And... In sanctification, we are being freed from the power of sin. And then in glorification, we will be free from the very presence of sin. But again, all, all, all of salvation is God's work from beginning to the end. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, from the beginning, God chose you to be saved. 
how did he how did how did that come to pass through the sanctifying work of the spirit see first thing god has to do is to regenerate you that's the work of the spirit of god and belief in the truth but see he has to regenerate us that has to come first because it when god regenerates us he also gives us faith and repentance and so we express that uh in christ and uh belief in the truth he doesn't believe for us but we can't believe unless he enables us to believe and it, it says he called you to this through our gospel. See, the, the end is salvation, but the means to that end is the preaching of the gospel. God's going to accomplish what he intends to do, but he'll also use the means that he has, uh, um, that he has prescribed in order to carry that out. And the whole purpose of that is so that there's not going to be any human boasting at all. I'm not going to get up there and say, well, you know, I, 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 yeah, Jesus paid it all, but at least uh, I didn't do some of the things old so and so did, and that's that's a form of boasting. It's by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not, and this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. See, the, what is the proper response? to what God has done in Christ, to this unbreakable chain of God's salvation, to His marvelous mercy, to the grace that He has shown us. The only response there is, is the response of gratitude, celebrating who God is. We, we should be overwhelmed by the majesty of God. Oh, Paul wrote, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be the glory forever. Amen. Our lives, our hearts should be filled with praise and thanksgiving and our lives should be those of dedicated service not dedicated service out of a sense of duty trying to earn our way but out of a sense of devotion and delight because jesus has indeed paid it all hebrews 13 verses 15 and 16 says through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to god that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name and don't neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices god is pleased see we forget verse 10 of ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 for by grace you have saved through faith and this not of yourselves it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. Verse 10, For we, believers, are His workmanship. It's the word poema. It's the, we get our word poem from it. It means masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God ordained for us to do. See, God has, God has a work for us to do. Our works are important. Our works don't mean anything as far as bringing us to salvation. But once God brings us to Himself, and we recognize that it is by grace that we are saved, that we are recipients of God's mercy, we come to see more and more that God has a plan and a purpose for our lives and we are to live that out and we are to glorify God by doing the things that He has called us to do. When Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished all of the sins of all of God's people from the beginning of time until its end were paid for in full. But salvation is experienced personally as the Holy Spirit applies that finished work of Christ to each of God's people individually. Together with regeneration, that is the new birth, God grants His people faith and repentance. And then because of that, having been made willing by the new birth, see, again, God doesn't save us against our will, He changes our will. Having been made willing by the new birth, 
God's people express repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does God do? He justifies us. He puts us in right standing with Himself. He declares us to be righteous. He imputes righteousness. Verse Psalm 32, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Why does the Lord not impute iniquity? Because that was imputed to the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness is imputed and credited to us. Our deeds, our works have no part whatsoever in securing our salvation, but they do serve as an indicator of our salvation. Paul wrote in Titus 3, I want to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. James also would write, Faith without corresponding works is dead. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. There are always corresponding works that go along with that. And in First First uh, John chapter three, Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, First John chapter three, the aged apostle John talks about the fact that one of the evidences that we truly know Christ is that we have love for the brothers and for the sisters as well. Praise be to God for His great mercy. Uh, Let's pray. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.